Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How are we doing this morning, family? Good to see you. Who knows what time it is? Yeah. The, the bad news is you lost an hour of sleep last night and you feel this morning like you got, just got off a plane from Dallas. Here's the good news. We're going to have daylight longer. I don't know about you, but I'll take it, right? And it's so great to see all of you today. For those of you who are joining us online, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in Revelation chapter 3 this morning uh, at a text that just demonstrates divine providence for me. This is a message that the bulk of the research and the preparation for it, I actually finished before the end of last year. Wasn't even thinking about the date. And as I really started looking over the, the message last night, it all of a sudden occurred to me how this subject uh, connects in, in a really direct way with, with a milestone that we are experiencing right now. One year ago, this Sunday, was the last time this congregation gathered in what we might call a normal time. I think we knew at that point things were not going to be normal for a while. After that, we flipped the switch. We went completely online, as did pretty much every other church in America. As the pandemic shut the world down, we spent the next 10 weeks trying to figure out, sorting through data, talking to medical professionals, speaking with our staff, and trying to talk about how do we pivot, uh, because there were two things that were really important. The first one was we had a community that was in dire need, the, the tri-state region in particular, and we need to reach out during some times that none of us in our lifetime had ever faced before joblessness began to spike, poverty, food insecurity, all those things became very acute realities for our region. So how do we minister in the middle of that? And then secondly, how do we eventually get to the point to where we can once again do what we're doing right now, which is to gather together? That's not something optional, according to the New Testament. And so how do we do that? But how do we do that in a manner that we can protect each other? And in the ensuing months, we began to see God do some powerful powerful stuff. And since those, that May 31st reopening, we've seen some really, really good things, haven't we? And we've also seen some not so good things. And I think it's safe to say with near 100% certainty that a lot of people in this room, a lot of people watching, a lot of people in the world right now are just really, really tired. Yeah, you're exhausted. And I don't mean the good kind of tired. There's a good kind of tired, like you've worked hard all day or you've spent months and months working on a project and you finally execute it with success. You, you have a baby. I don't know so much what that's like, but I know what it's like to be in the room. And, and so, you, you know, you kind of have some big experience and this wonderful thing has happened, but it's something that's cost you a lot of energy. And so you just crash on the bed that night. And it's, it's, but it's the kind of exhaustion that you just sort of lay your head on the pillow and you're content and, and you're exhausted, but you're exhausted to the glory of God. And you're just beaming as you go off to sleep. That's not the, that's not the kind of tired I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of tired where it's hard to put one foot in front of the other. I'm talking about the kind of tired that leads to the very 
kind of misdirection that this series has been warning us against. Distraction, giving up. And all of us have had this on the micro level. I mean, every single one of us has had a day when from the time you got out of bed, you felt like you were behind, haven't you? Pre-pandemic, you had days like that. You had seasons like that. Maybe it was a project at work. Who knows what it was? But you felt, as, as it were, behind the eight ball. Uh, or as I've often said to, to Pastor Dave over the last year, to use a surfing analogy, and, and I should know this, not because I'm a good surfer, but because I'm a bad one, I feel like I'm under the board. Right? It's one thing to ride the wave when you're on top of the board. It's the other thing, it's another thing to not ride the wave, but to ride the board and to be clinging for dear life up underneath it and trying not to get water sucked down in your lungs. All of us have had seasons like that, and those seasons have have made us tired. But it just seems like for the last year we've been in an environment that's been life-sucking in so many ways. But even if you go back before all of this. There have been things that have happened, seasons, and some of you went through that. It's, it's been amazing to me to see faithful families that love Jesus, and they, they just deal with one difficult circumstance right after the other, sickness, job loss, then maybe a rebellious child, maybe being abused or mistreated. And you, you may be sitting here this morning, and you feel a lot like the characters in that famed C.S. Lewis novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You may feel like you're living in Narnia, that, that fabled land. Before the thaw, where the white witch, who's the satanic character in, in, that, in that novel, has taken over and is effectively ruling the world. And they're waiting on the Christ figure, a lion by the name of Aslan, but he has not yet come. And the feelings of that whole land are summed up in this way. It is always winter, but never Christmas. Some of you might feel that way. It's just dark and cold, and there doesn't seem to be any reward for it. And, and you, you may have gone through the last 12 months feeling that way. And maybe you wouldn't quite express it this way, but as I express it, that you're going like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. It's like, I get that we live in a fallen world. I get that this is heaven and not earth. I get that there are going to be times when there are going to be things that are going to disappoint. Never, nothing is going to work perfectly, but it just seems like there's nothing good. It just seems like every time I turn around, something else bad is happening. It seems like everything is just dark. I don't even see any beauty in this anymore, Pastor. And in that kind of environment that's so physically, mentally, and emotionally, spiritually exhausting, if you give in to the temptation that this isn't working and this isn't worth it, exhaustion will paralyze you. And then it'll knock you off your mission. And that is not what Jesus wants for us. And so this morning, we're going to examine a local congregation that dealt with some very, very similar trying, exhausting times. They existed 2,000 years ago. They found themselves in the middle, middle of a similar environment, and I'm talking about a place called Philadelphia. Now, we're not talking about the place nearby up here in Pennsylvania. We're talking about the first Philadelphia. It existed in a nation that's now called Turkey. It was named that, uh, it was given that name rather by Attalus and Eumenes, two brothers who wanted to demonstrate and commemorate their affection for each other in founding the city. Now, I have a younger brother, and it's not that I don't love him, but I would never name a city after him. So these two guys, they must have really liked each other, and they named this city based on two Greek words, philos and adelphos, love between brothers. And today we even refer to our own Philadelphia as the city of brotherly love. I 
I'm not exactly sure why, because whether the eagles win or whether they lose, they always end up burning the city down. And yet, they call it the city of brotherly love. Well, that's what was commemorated or what wanted to be commemorated in this city. And by the time this letter is written to this city, there's been a church that's been planted in this city. And there's apparently a lot of opposition to their ministry, and it's coming from multiple sources. The two most prominent being marginalization from local authorities representing the Roman Empire, and then a large Jewish community who apparently was causing trouble for this congregation. And so the result is a church that, according to verse 8, Jesus says, you have, you have little power. They, they felt oppressed. They felt impotent to do anything about their situation. And yet with all these odds stacked against them, apparently they remain faithful. And one of the things we see in this passage is that Jesus noticed. I want you to hear that this morning. When you simply do the right thing, it may still look dark. It may seem as though there is no reward coming. But I can promise you this, the Son of God who is your Lord and Savior notices because we see that in multiple other places in the Scriptures. Jesus noticed, and it's what he notices here that I think will give us a little bit of hope today. If you're at that point that you're wondering, is it working? Is it worth it? it take some encouragement today to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Continue to endure. I know it's been a hard year. And one of the most profitable things I think we can do right now at this moment is to learn from a church that existed a long, long time ago how to overcome exhaustion and stay faithful. You're going to need three resources in order to do that. Here's the good news. All three of them are available to you, and you can walk out with them today. But they all come from Jesus. And I want you to see them here. The first is that we need to look at Jesus as our source. All right, Texas dealt with this back during the cold. Uh, apparently, they'd been depending just a little bit too much on alternative energy. They had some wind turbines that froze up, some things they didn't realize were going to happen, and guess what happened? The energy source went away, and the result was really bad for a lot of people. Jesus is telling us here, there's a spiritual energy source that won't do that to you. It won't run out. He says in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So he begins just by simply giving the church a powerful picture of his own identity. He says, first of all, I am holy, which simply means to be set apart. God is different. Christians have believed ever since the beginning of our existence, along with our Jewish and even our Muslim neighbors, that there are two and only two different kinds of beings. There's creator and created. And Jesus is in this former category. There is one and only one God, and Jesus is creator. He is the other. He is set apart from all other beings in this way. He is also ethically set apart, which is normally what we first think of when we hear the word holy. Jesus is the holy one. He is secondly also the true one. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the genuine article in a world of fake news where you don't even know who to believe anymore and in a world where people would even tell you no one believes that, no one behaves that way, no one would stand for that anymore. Jesus reminds us truth is not determined by popular vote. It's determined by him. He decides what is truth. And this one who is holy and who holds the truth and who is the truth has the key of David. 
And every time you see that metaphor in the New Testament, it's a symbol of authority. So I am the Holy One who has set apart and created all things, and I have determined what is truth. When you believe me, you are believing the truth, and I have all authority. Here's the big idea. Jesus is king. And wherever leadership, whatever leadership there is in this environment or even in our environment on earth, whether it's political, spiritual, whatever it is, above it all is Jesus. Always. So here's the first step in in overcoming exhaustion. It's to have a big picture of Jesus. Get a picture of Jesus that Scripture describes and meditate on that and believe that he's who he says he is. This is a really simple first step. But, But we miss this sometimes when we let our surroundings get more attention than our Lord gets. And that way, that means our problems start to seem bigger. And then before you know it, they are bigger. All that starts with a little picture of Jesus. This was a church surrounded by hardship, opposition, They'd accepted Jesus as Messiah when many of their Jewish cousins had rejected him and were pressuring them to turn away. And then on top of that, a government oppressor, marginalization that sought probably through the pressure toward worshiping the emperor Domitian to push them toward unfaithfulness, and they did not give in. And they stood on the very truth that they believed rightly was embodied in the Lord Jesus. But I imagine that would have been hard, wouldn't it? Whoever's... Where did we get the idea that following Jesus was easy? Where did that ever come from? It certainly didn't come from the Bible. It just did not. And so Jesus reminds them here, I have the key of David. I know you think that it's hopeless. I know that you're tired. You need to remember that if I want to open a door, it'll be open. If I want to shut a door, it will shut. And no one will be able to open it. It's one, one interesting thing about all these letters. Anytime, anytime Jesus says something to any of these churches, he reminds them not of how he was, but of who he is in, in the present tense, after his resurrection, after his ascension, after his return to, to heaven to sit at his Father's right hand. When we're tired, the source of our strength to persevere comes from somebody who's more than a mere religious concept. It's someone who's an actual person. Furthermore, someone who's no longer dead but is alive. Someone who's no longer living in the humiliation but who is living in glory. Someone who is no longer marginalized as we sometimes feel, but someone who for 2,000 years has been ruling as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you're tired this morning, remember that that's who you follow. Remember that that's who you worship. Jesus is your source of strength. And here's some more good news. Jesus is a sufficient source of strength. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's who Jesus is looking for, by the way. I mean, really, how impressed should he be with someone who follows him but is not pressured not to? How impressed should he really be with someone who has all the power and all the privilege and all the money and all of the advantage and everything else and and really has no hardship to push against? That's not hard. There's no demonstration of faithfulness in that. It is when there is resistance that he says, Oh, I see that. 
I see you. you. You have little power, but you've kept my word. And so here comes the promise. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, those are some really encouraging words for exhausted believers. I know your works. I see you. You're not forgotten. I haven't left you behind. Listen, every, every person of influence in this world cannot even know that you exist, and none of it matters. Jesus says, I see you. I have not forgotten you. And, and I know you are perceived by those surrounding you as being nothing. You have a little power. Your influence seems benign. No one wants you at the grown-ups table anymore. Let me remind you again that truth is not determined by popular vote. Truth is what I say it is. And let me tell you the truth about you. All right? Let's stop for a minute and consider that for a moment. Jesus is saying, I, I just told you the truth about me. Now I'm going to give you the truth about yourself. And I need you to believe what I say about me. And I need you to believe what I say about you. So let me ask that question. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to that helps give definition to yourself right now? Some people live in sin and they live in rebellion. Or they live a life of utilitarianism, whatever i got to take to win, whatever it takes for me to get ahead, and they justify it. And sometimes they justify it, at least in part, because they find people around them that will affirm them in that. Confirmation bias is really easy to find in our day of boutique media and tribalism. But if you're living this way, Jesus calls to you and he says, what I say about you is actually the truth, and the truth is that you need to repent. We saw this last week in Sardis, didn't we? You have a reputation for being alive. People look at you and they think you're okay. I'm telling you you're dead. And that means the truth is that you're dead. But conversely, there are those who serve faithfully that sometimes don't see a lot of tangible evidence of God's blessing. Where is he? Am I really even doing the right thing? And if we find ourselves hated or oppressed or having a hard time everywhere we look because of our faithfulness to Jesus, make sure it's because of your faithfulness to Jesus and not because you're a jack wagon, okay? Feel kind of necessary to throw that in there. But if it's because of your faithfulness to Jesus, well, Jesus told you this was part of the deal. You're going to be hated, but you need to remember that there's only one opinion that matters, just one. Just one. And he says of this church, you have not denied my name. You have kept my word. And I noticed. I noticed. These had to be the most encouraging words, especially in the middle of what verse 9 describes. When you, when you consider the full context of where this congregation finds themselves, we discover that there were two primary groups that almost like formed a vice around these, these first century Christians and started to press in on them. One was a group of compromised Christians, people who claimed to follow Jesus, but they'd given in. Maybe they capitulated to emperor worship or some other kind of political or cultural pressure during Domitian's reign. More particularly, probably surrounded the increased pressure to join that cult. But there's another group here too that's described rather graphically and it, it, the background for that was the worsening, rapidly deteriorating relationship at the time between Jews and followers of the way, which is what the early Christians 
called themselves. Early on, we, and we forget this sometimes because Christianity launched among our Jewish cousins and it involved a, a supermajority of our Jewish neighbors. It didn't really become a Gentile religion really until the church of Philippi was planted. And so it was almost exclusively Jewish. Then it became supermajority Jewish. And so Christians worshiping Jesus as Messiah were perceived by the wider culture, including a lot of fellow Jews, as just this sort of weird subset of Judaism. That was the perception and the understanding for a really, really long time. But by the time we get to this letter, that gap is starting to noticeably widen. And the result is there's a Jewish community in Philadelphia that's apparently causing all kinds of problems for this church. And Jesus doesn't mince words. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. Like, not politically correct can get you banned from Twitter kind of stuff. I mean, this is bad, right? But it's important now for us to understand what he's saying. These words, if they don't unsettle you just a little bit, then either your heart is colder than it ought to be or you have no real understanding of history. Synagogue of Satan. Words that have, just in the last century, been weaponized in a way to do what through the centuries all manner of other people tried to do, committing atrocity toward our Jewish neighbors. Sin. Violence abomination toward them. So we got to be careful here. We have to be honest with what the text says. We don't skip over it. It's there. But let's deal with it in the way that, in the way that this Jew named Jesus would have wanted us to deal with it. And the first thing you've got to remember is that Scripture, if taken as a whole, not just this one verse, but this one verse in the context of the whole, eventually condemns everybody as a sinner. Jews are not exempt from this, but neither are they or any other ethnic group singularly to blame for this. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in this context, that this widening gap existed between those who accepted Jesus as Messiah and those who did not. And the focus here isn't merely about the antagonists who are persecuting the church, but Jesus is pointing them and us to the real enemy behind it all, Satan. Satan's our real enemy. No matter who's pressing on us, our job is to love our neighbor, and that includes, according to the very explicit words of Jesus, loving our enemies, because they're not supposed to be enemies. We're not supposed to treat them as enemies, because Every single person in this world is someone Jesus died to save. And so if we're going to understand the true nature of the battle, we need to understand the nature of Jesus' words here that our real enemy behind it all is the devil. Our fight, it's with him. It's with him. It's not really with anybody in this world. He's the chief adversary. And so Jesus says this to them, I see what surrounds you. I know the pressure you're under. I know well the enemy behind it all. You need to trust me in this moment that I will bring it all to light. And he had already said this in the Gospels. Nothing is hidden that will not be made known. Nothing. I'm going to vindicate you. That's the promise. Are you tired? Listen to these words. Vindication is coming. That day is coming. For now, just keep obeying me. Don't jump the tracks because you want revenge on your enemies. 
Stay obedient to me. Stay focused on me. Don't back down. Don't give in. Believe that I am enough. Guys, this is the biggest temptation in the West is to think, well, if I got a little bit more power, if I got a little bit more money, if I had a little bit more influence, and, and then if any of that starts to fray or get away from you, there's all kinds of angst and maybe even some anger, and, and who knows what you'll do. And Jesus may be asking some of you this morning, if you're feeling that angst, when am I going to be enough for you? When am I enough? Trust me, I am sufficient for you in this moment. And here's the third thing. Jesus is not just our source. He's not just all sufficient. He's strong enough to see us through. Jesus is our strength. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. We're going to unpack that statement this summer with a series called The Return of the King. I am coming soon. You're like, praise the Lord. Some of you are thinking, yeah, Pastor, I'm telling you, a year ago, I wasn't so anxious about all that. And now I'm kind of, yeah, well, that's the point of suffering. That's precisely the point. Not that you would do something stupid and take your own life. Not that you would stop being faithful in this life. But that you would focus much more on the next one. I'm coming soon. Here's the result. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your money. That's not what it said. So that no one will seize your power. So that no one will seize your influence. So that no one will seize your way of life. Oh, now I'm meddling, aren't I? So that no one may seize your crown. Because in light of eternity, that's the only thing that matters. That's it. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my new name, my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, verse 10 is interesting. Uh, what does it mean? I will keep you from a coming hour of trial. There are some people, and they're good folks, and they follow Jesus, and some of them might be in front of me right now, that believe that refers to something called the rapture of the church, this, this event that's going to come right, right before the, the, the end times scenarios begin, and it's going to just suck all of us who belong to Jesus up into the air to meet the Lord. We're going to go to heaven, and we're going to be there for roughly seven years while all hell breaks loose here on the earth. Um, I, I love you if you believe that. I love academic colleagues of mine who believe that as long as they recognize that that's a, that's a system of thought and belief that nobody really believed until about 1830, okay? And, and so when I look at this, I think texts like Matthew 24 in particular, and I'll give you the verses, 29 to 31, make the case for a pre-tribulational rapture difficult to demonstrate. You don't have to agree with me. Some of the elders don't agree with me, and that's totally fine. But I'm up here right now, and you deserve to know what your pastor thinks, all right? We have multiple views, and we don't, we don't fight about this here. My, and in fact, I hope my pre-trib brothers are right. I'll be happy to be wrong if I miss all of what comes afterwards, okay? More than happy. 
But I'm going to suggest that that's not really the point of verse 10. That the, the real question is, what does verse 10 mean for Philadelphia? I will keep you from the hour, hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. And I think answering that question takes a careful examination of, of, of the Greek grammar here. Another way this language could be presented in English is this. I will protect you from an appointed time of testing and temptation. Here's the big idea. When everybody around you gave in, you stood firm. When everybody around you gave in, you didn't. You kept my word. You passed the test. And so for you, it's over. I'm not going to send another one to you. You're not going to be concerned about it. Jesus is honoring a church that has been severely tested and found true and loyal to him. And then he says, I'm coming soon. Now, don't let the word soon throw you off, okay? Because it's been 2,000 years. What does that mean, soon? Well, this is in terms of, of cosmic time. Remember when I said Jesus defines what truth is? Jesus also defines what soon means. That ain't my personal calendar, okay? That's not, well, Lord, I got this thing on Thursday I'd really like to be a part of. How about Friday afternoon? The Lord is going to decide this. And he says, basically, I'm coming back. And he wanted the Philadelphian Christians to know that in, in the space of eternity, it's really not that far away. Even now, it seems like 2,000 years. Over the course of your life and mine, it's probably seemed like a long time. We've got to have a view of eternity that understands rightly that compared to eternity, what we've experienced, even some of you that have been eight, nine decades on this planet, that's a blip on the radar screen compared to what's coming next. And Jesus says, soon, you just keep being faithful. Keep being faithful. I know you're tired. It will not be this way forever. Aren't you encouraged by that? It will not be like this forever. And by the way, remember all of this. In a few months, when we all have a mask burning ceremony here, oh, trust me, it's coming, right? Yeah, when we get completely back to where we were a year ago about this time, remember these words. Because it's still going to get better. Right? If the economy bounces back, if every two, three, four years from now, six years from now, everything's great, remember, it's still not near what it could be. It is still an irreparably fallen world. Irreparable without Jesus, that is. But Jesus is coming soon, and he will say to you even then, it's going to get so much better. And what you're in right now it will all be over one day. And when that next day comes, there's one last promise. Probably when you look at verses 12 and 13, probably seems like trying to interpret a foreign language. It's most likely a reference to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. There were two characters there, Boaz and Jachin, two men memorialized in that day in the, in the pillars of Solomon's temple. Jesus is taking that as a metaphor, and he's saying to the church of Philadelphia, because you've been faithful, that's you. You will be remembered like this. This is how you will be remembered. You ever just feel powerless, like I can't do anything about what's going on, I can't change my situation, I'm frustrated, 
Jesus says to you, if you will be faithful to me, your future is as a pillar in that temple. Just because you appear weak doesn't mean you are. And that gives us insight into these words in verse 8. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And every single place where that metaphor is used in the New Testament, it describes an opportunity for ministry. I know you're tired. I know you feel like quitting. You need to remember who you worship. Remember who I am and look up and look ahead because that door that's open in front of you, I opened it. And there's not anybody in heaven or on he in hell or in this earth, not the persecuting elements in your city or the government authority that seeks to get you to worship the emperor or anything else in your life or in this world that will shut that door. So keep walking. Keep walking. I am your source. I am sufficient for you. I am your strength. And apparently that's exactly what the church did. It's interesting to tease out the histories of these respective congregations. We know that from last week, for example, the Sardis history didn't end very well. That wasn't true for Philadelphia. They took this word from Jesus. And at their most exhausted, they put their foot on the gas and continued to serve faithfully for 1,200 more years. We know that because of our Muslim friends. Because when Islam finally arrived in this city in the 11th century, by the time they arrived, most of the churches in this region were gone. They, they talk about Islamic conquest, and yes, there was some of that, and then history's nuanced, and there's a lot of good guys and bad guys on all sides. I'm not, getting, I'm not even going to get into that today. I'm just going to say, for the most part, there wasn't a lot of Christianity to conquer. There just wasn't, because these churches had given up. They've been wiped away, become indistinguishable from the culture around them. But when these, when these Muslims got to Philadelphia, they found a church still standing. A church that 1,200 years earlier had heard the words of their Savior and found the strength in the middle of raw exhaustion to keep being faithful. And they did it for another 1,000 years. I thought about that story and that history. What, what would that look like here? Because if you go back to our beginning and then you move forward 1,200 years, all right, for us, that's the year 3221. So if you think about that in, in the span of history for a minute. If Jesus doesn't return, what will become of us by that point? What becomes of this body of believers? Will we, in a moment of exhaustion, find in Jesus our source and our sufficient strength Will he be enough for us? And will that passion and affection for him be something that our great, 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 great grandchildren can ride off of? I mean, I know it doesn't look good now. I mean, let's be real. In the West, almost every demographic study that comes back on faith and culture tells us that the Western church is incapable of even keeping some of its own children. And some of you are 
right now. Your kids are somewhere else this morning, and I don't mean in another church in another city. I mean, they're just not following Jesus anymore. And you wonder what happened. And there's a lot of probably answers to that question relative to your particular situation and relative to that adult child. I'm, I'm sure that's probably true. But you know what will change that trend, generally speaking? It doesn't mean that there's not going to be a rebel. It doesn't mean that if that's happened in your family that it's necessarily your fault. But it is to say that in a general sense, way too much of this is happening, and there is a way to change it. It is when our children and our grandchildren see how we respond to exhaustion. When our children and grandchildren see how we respond to persecution, to oppression. They see us riled up angst and being nasty and being ugly and like, just like the rest of the world. That, that's, that's worldliness. What reason do they have to hang around? But when they see us, after everything we've been made to endure, after almost everyone else has given up, when they see us do this, that is going to be the beginning point of being able in the future, if Jesus doesn't return first, of seeing some of the very last names in front of me right now, some of the same family units that are watching me right now, represented in this church in the 33rd century. That's how you get there. But it all starts with how you deal with your spiritual exhaustion. How do you do it? That's God's vision, by the way, for every church when we're tired. When we're tired that we think of who Jesus is and we think Jesus loves me, Jesus has made promises to me, and so I'm going to give my life to the mission of Jesus and the mission of Jesus' church. And then it happens in the next generation when Jesus loves your children in the same way that he loved you. And they, following your example, respond to that by giving their lives to the mission of Jesus and the mission of his church. And then your grandchildren are loved by Jesus. And they respond by giving their lives to Jesus and his mission and the mission of his church. All of it in his all-sufficient strength. And it starts in a room just like this one with a bunch of people who are tired, with a bunch of people who are done, and I'm with you, saying, Jesus is enough. Is he? When will Jesus be enough? Here's my challenge, guys. Let's put our foot on the gas and find out. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, I pray your people are encouraged today. Lord, so many false promises of quick results, fast prosperity, in instantaneous power that we're all tempted to fall for. Father, may we never, ever lose sight of who you are and what you have called us to do, and may you keep us faithful. And may we put all of our faith and trust in the real promises, grounded in the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so, Lord Jesus, may we be faithful to you no matter the cost. And may we believe in faith 
that redemption is coming. And may there be a joy that replaces the just hollowed out nature of so many souls. Father, I know there's a lot of suffering and I know there's a lot of angst and I know that, Lord, there are just so many people that are just right there on the edge, Father. By your sovereign grace, would you just pull them back? Back into your fellowship, back into your love, back into the identity of who you are, back into the unchanging nature of this God that we worship. And Lord, may they find in that moment fresh energy, a fresh outlook, a greater hope, a greater joy, and may they walk in it. May all of us walk in it until we see you. And Lord, as a result of that, may the legacy that we leave behind, may you bless that in such a way that, Lord, if, if your return is delayed beyond that point, in the 33rd century, there will still be a people. Lord, I, I don't, who knows what this, if, if West Virginia will even exist then. Who knows if the town of Shepherdstown will exist then. But Father, there is a way for your church to still exist. 1,200 years from this moment, Lord, may we respond well and faithfully to exhaustion and may we find the empowerment we need. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.